This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We begin today with Nelson Lichtenstein, who joins us to talk about the impending rail strike and the tentative deal reached to prevent it by labor leaders, the government, and the freight rail companies. The workers are demanding paid sick days and more predictable and humane schedules, but they weren't at the table forging the tentative agreement. They're the ones, however, who will decide whether or not to ratify or reject the deal. Nelson says rail workers are shaking up labor once again. His title for the op-ed that appeared in the LA Times on September 15th was We Need a Railroad Strike. He'll explain. We then turn to Ukraine and talk to Ukrainian writer and documentary filmmaker Anatoly Ulyanov about his article published by Left East on September 10th called The Superfluous People of Eastern Ukraine. This article is like no other that I've seen because it addresses a crucial question about what happens when the war, once the war ends, however that may turn out, when the question of reintegrating the Donbass, not just territory, but the peoples, becomes primary. Anatoly extends his analysis to include all those who will be strangers in their own country. We get his take when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have Nelson Lichtenstein back with us. He's joining us to talk about the state of the impending rail strike and the tentative deal agreed upon to prevent it by labor leaders, the government and the rail industry. Workers weren't at the table for the marathon talks, but there are, I don't know, somewhere I keep seeing either 115,000, 120,000, more than 100,000 workers who were represented by 12 different unions, but three main ones who are going to decide whether or not to ratify or reject this deal. Nelson has an op-ed in the LA Times on September 15th, and it's titled, Rail Workers Are Shaking Up Labor Once Again, but Nelson says the original title was, We Need a Railroad Strike. So we're going to get Nelson's views. Let me just tell you, he is a labor historian at UCSB Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He writes about a political economy and labor, including the automotive industry, Walmart. His latest published book was Capitalism Contested, New Deal and Its Legacy that came out in 2020, but he has a new book that'll be out in several months, and that's called A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and American Capitalism, another great title. And there's lots of other books. Maybe I'll get a chance to mention them. But Nelson, welcome back to the program. Glad to be here. Me too. Well, let's just cut to the chase. So to a lot of fanfare, the White House announced that they had reached a tentative deal between the railroad workers and the freight rail companies to avert a strike, which was obviously the point. Can you just begin by laying out what the fundamental issues were that led to this threat of a strike? And then we'll go into what the agreement was. Yeah. I mean, the the prehistory, immediate prehistory was that the Railroad companies, beginning the last decade, 
they cut their workforce by about a quarter, by 45,000 people. And basically, they wanted to reduce costs. Uh, they had a kind of general strategy for They knew that they were kind of a linch, linchpin in logistics system, and they've been jacking up prices. And I read a piece the other day that railroads, believe it or not, railroads are like more profitable than Silicon Valley. I mean, they, they, they're really profitable these days because they have sort of pricing power. That's, you know, they can, so they have a lower, much smaller workforce. But then, of course, as the pandemic ended, there's a tremendous surge of freight. And, uh, we, you know, the whole logistics operation is a, a thing. We were buying things and not, not services. So that goes on the railroads. So they, they ended up with this, what the railroad workers call a draconian sort of attendance scheduling system. I don't want to go into all the details, but basically workers would get points and then they would, if they didn't show up when they were supposed to show up, points were deducted and they could be penalized in various ways. Now, in in, in one sense, if there were enough workers, then the system would be, you know, you'd work for a while and you'd, you'd, you'd finish your, your shift. You'd go to the go off, have a week or five days off, and, and then you'd come back, sort of like the, like the longshoremen have at a hiring hall. The problem was when they cut back so many workers, people had very, very a little bit of downtime and they and they were continually working. And then, of course, in the newspapers, this was uh, workers, you know, get penalized for going to the doctor. Well, that was true, but but it was actually just their whole work life was being screwed up and and being uh, manipulated. And that was one of the major, major issues. They got a, a good wage increase, or a fairly good wage increase, 24%. Everyone agreed on that. That wasn't the issue. But, you know, but I think, see, this scheduling is it's part of a, of a larger issue, which affects millions and millions of workers in, you know, fast food and service industries and, and, and the warehouses and, and uh, you name it, retail for sure, where the work week We've lost the 40-hour work week. That's what we've done. You know, the 40-hour work week was a great demand of the labor movement, you know, in the 19th and early 20th centuries. You know, the slogan was eight hours for work, eight Mm -hmm. hours for sleep, eight hours for what we will, you know, and the achievement of the eight-hour day was, was a great accomplishment. Well, we've lost it. I mean, and it's not just the railroad workers. It's tens of millions of people no longer have an eight-hour day or even a predictable work schedule. And that was really what this issue was all about. And I think why it struck a chord. The the actual, what they ended up with, I mean, frankly, they, they haven't sort of publicized the, the railroad, neither the unions nor the government nor the railroads have actually given us the details. And I think it's probably a very modest change. And therefore, it's not impossible that this whole thing could be rejected by the workers when they vote on it but that'll be probably after the november election or i mean yeah they, very they, political <laughs> yeah, g- given the railway labor act what that means is that you, you, the government can put cool so-called cooling off periods postpone for 30 days or something of strike so yeah it puts it off and and that's what that's what the government wanted what biden administration wanted yeah I have a great quote from one of the workers that I want to read, but I, I, you just touched on the kind of legal structure when you talked about, you know, the, the cooling off period and the rules of the NLRB. And I think my understanding is that the railway workers in particular are under even tighter constraints yeah. uh, under the law than, you know, the NLRB would, would do that. So what's the bigger picture on that and the role of Congress and well, legal structure? Right. Yeah, as, I, as I indicated in this piece I wrote, the, I mean, the railroad, ironically, we, railroad workers have been out of sight, out of mind for decades. We, don't, we aren't excited about them. But in this instance, just recently, they were kind of the vanguard of the working class, at least in terms of, of, of resolving some problems. And in the 19th century, of course, 
uh, late 19th century, the railroad workers, I mean, you know, every decade we had a massive rail strike, uh, which was kind of uh, near revolutionary in its implications. I mean, in 1877, they burned down central Pittsburgh and, and battled the National Guard in Philadelphia and Baltimore. And, and of course, Eugene V. Debs was thrown in jail in 1894 after he led a massive rail strike centered on Chicago. So, I mean, the, the railway workers were the were the essence of the working class. And there were about, I think, two million of them at one point. Uh, and the railroads, of course, were the, were the biggest corporations, uh, you know, in the country. The stock exchange, basically 80 percent of all stock was railroad stock. I mean, so these were this was the essence of of capitalism at that time. And, uh, you know, as a result, uh, well, like the eight hour day was achieved on the on the rails in, in 19, 1916 by government uh, legislation. And then in 1926, they passed the Railway Labor Act, which was both good and bad. On the one hand, it was it was, in fact, a law, a federal law, which facilitated the organization of workers uh, in this very still very important industry uh, in 1926 and provided, you know, various mechanisms, uh, uh, votes and elections and and certification, the same sort of thing that we ended up with in the uh, with the Wagner Act. But it also made it it constrained what the workers can do after all in, that, in those days and still today railroads you know if, you, if they if they're shut down that's the, the country is shut down so they it put these so-called cooling off periods in postponement i mean by the way the ideology behind a cooling off period is that oh workers get excited they don't really know what they want they're, they're irrational <laughs> so let's have them cool off you know like like sending a kid to the corner and cool off you know what boy you show you you throw a tantrum again anyway and then typically what has happened for the last century really on rail is that the workers would threaten to strike they you know and then the government the congress would come in and basically adopt the settlement uh, that had been proposed by some board or something uh, not always uh, uh, satisfactorily and this, you know it really is a quasi involuntary servitude is you know we fought a civil war about that <laughs> and really what you're doing here is when you when you impose a settlement uh, it, it it has a character of involuntary servitude so um but the Railway Labor Act, by the way, which still co- which covers airlines as well today, and that's actually even more important than the railroads and perhaps at least mm. more workers anyway, it, it does provide for for governmental intervention on the, in, a, in a greater degree than, the, than even the uh, National Labor Relations Act, uh, the Wagner Act. Yeah. Wow. So let's go back to what, you know, was on the table, what issues remain on the table, whether or not, you know, to go back to the agreement. And of course, this, as you mentioned, Nelson Lichtenstein, uh, this tentative deal includes a 24 percent wage increase over five years. I think part of that was agreed upon already several years right. ago, so it'll start earlier. Um, but yeah. the workers have said, as you just mentioned, that they're more concerned about the punishing scheduling policies that are imposed by the companies. And as you also said, lack of days off, um, paid days off and this point system and all the rest of it. And I want you to go just a little bit more into these, you know, how can these working conditions exist? And I found on Twitter this just one great thing from a railroad worker. And he says, a lot of people are wondering why the railroad is facing a strike. It's not money, folks. That's been ironed out already. It's quality of life issues. About 50% of railroaders are on a call 24-7 unless they're on personal time or already at work. We don't have a schedule. There isn't one where we are on call. After 16 years, I get three weeks vacation and nine personal days a year. That's it, about 30 days. And the railroad wants that to be scheduled. How do you schedule a funeral in October if it's only February? Schedule for a wedding 
that hasn't yet been announced. Schedule to take your spouse to the doctor. Most people get two days a week off with 52 weeks a year. That's 104 days plus two weeks. So that equals 118 days off over the year. I get 30 for the year. The railroad is trying its best to make us look like the bad guys, but here we're not. We just want to see our family and live a little. I don't know if you already saw that I tweet. But- no, I didn't. But I mean, what he's saying is that the weekends are meaningless on the railroad. They don't have weekends, basically. It means that it's true. Rail traffic goes all the time. So they're on call, and then, as I said, they, they you know where they work on a Sunday or whatever it is, and and it's impossible for them to to uh, schedule you know all sorts of things that involve you know family life. And I would say that, that you can have a, that this kind of rotating schedule where you know you work for a few days and then you go off the list and then you sort of go home and wait wait around. You can do that. The the, the longshoremen do that, uh, the same sort of thing. But what you need to have is enough workers, and, you know, to do that. And when the railroads cut twenty five percent their workforce in the last five or six years and then the amount of freight increases so it means that workers have very little downtime you know they, you know once they go off the list you know just a day or two and they and and then their, their penalties are quite severe if they don't show up uh, that's mm. it's called precision scheduled railroading that was the phrase they they used and yes they wanted to be able to to you know okay five months ahead of time i want to take this day off or that etc but right things happen in your life life happens you know and uh, with kids and everything so uh, I just I want to ask one little thing there. It says, you yeah. know, you said it's precision scheduled railroading. I just wonder if that expression got railroaded into this comes from, you know, precisely their working conditions. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yes. One thing, one thing we should mention here that the enormous number of, of metaphors in, in, in the English language which come out of the railroads, like blowing your stack and railroaded in one track mine, probably more than any other uh, technology. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Anyway, so the point I'd like to make to your listeners is that, that yeah, railroad work, you know, we're talking 100,000, you know, more 150,000, whatever. There are a few more, you know, but this same issue is the issue at Starbucks. It's the issue at, at, at Walmart. It's the issue at Amazon. I mean, this is what, with algorithms, with a kind of 24-7 kind of economy, that what this creates is this is a, a destruction, really, of the kind of predictability of life that, that ordinary people want. I mean, oh, it's flexible. Yeah, it's flexible for management, but for the rest of us, it's chaos, you know? And by the way, what was it? one thing that I found was interesting is that some of the shippers, like the big agricultural shippers and the chemical, many of them were as pissed off at the railroads as were the workers because this system was um, forcing them also into kind of uh, difficult uh, kind of scheduling of, of their shipments and such. And, and there was a congressional hearing just held a few months ago where, where the, the industries were just lambasting the railroads on this question. And, and, and when you get that, that kind of situation, really, it, it, it's a call for more labor power and more greater government regulation unquestionably and and we, we think of the railroads as um, they, they were they were the first institution that was heavily regulated by the government in the 18, in the 19th century well they've sort of in various ways you know escaped that <laughs> and i think it's time for that to happen again again i could go into okay yeah i do want to but you've raised so much uh, nelson lichtenstein one is maybe you could just say who this workforce is uh-huh. you know who they've been historically And then I guess that would lead to how is this possible that in this tentative agreement, the main issue that concerns the workers wasn't the one that was really seriously addressed. But we can go into that after you first explain who they are. 
Well, that's a good question. And actually, I think it raises a very interesting political cultural point. Now, I don't have demographic statistics in front of me, but from all everything I've seen, these are a lot of white male middle-aged guys, right? I mean, and many of them live in the Midwest, you know, at places like that. And you'd say, well, who this is the demographic of, you know, the Trump uh, constituency. Exactly. I was and thinking I think, that. But I, and I think this said something about um, the nature of unionism and politics and ideology. One thing we find is, and I've, I've written about this in another place, no one in any of the newspapers or any, any, any on TV has called this potential strike, the, the pissed off character of these workers, and they're very pissed off, populist. <laughs> no one has called it. Why is that? And that's true for other things too. When the ILWU, which is also composed of a lot of white guys, and you know, when they do something, or the, you know, no, they don't call them poppy. Why is that? Well, I think it says a lot about the meaning of how a union structures collective protest in a more progressive fashion than, you know, the kind of alienated and atomistic kind of protest, uh, anti-elite. I mean, these workers are hostile to the to these big, wealthy railroads. They're anti-elite. They're probably hostile to the Biden administration right now as well, because it didn't come through with what they wanted. But they are in these institutions which have mechanisms for democratic discussion. Not perfect, but it's there. And they know they're linked to other people. And they know, you know, and I think that's that, that's a good lesson for a lot of us about the, the nature of protests by, you know, what we think of as the demographic that, 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 that was tilting to the right. Um, I would say one more thing. In the, the railroad brotherhoods, historically, I'm here going back 100 years, they were quite conservative. And some of them were, were incredibly racist. I mean, uh, you know, keeping blacks out of the trains and all that sort of thing, you know, and, and, the, and the railroad brother always viewed as kind of, you know, the most partly most conservative element of, of American labor. However, however, the very existence of these collective institutions of the working class, even if it was sort of an aristocracy of the working class, meant that their power was being directed against, you know, capitalists, you know, and, and therefore, when they won things, um, yeah, sometimes they just went for themselves, but then that would have a tendency to then spread to the rest of the working class, which is true for the eight hour day, which was one in 1916, and then in the Fair Labor Standards Act, more or less extended to many, many millions others 20 years later. So I think that's a kind of lesson that we need to think about. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if 50% of these workers voted for Trump. But insofar as they're functioning as workers in a union, it's a more progressive kind of a, a conflict is taking place, you know? Uh, this is an amazing subject, but and I, maybe your book addresses some of this because this is something that I want to talk about. Okay, so what about their position in these unions and in this this uh, turmoil? Yeah, I mean, for many years, people have known that political operatives and social scientists have known that that workers who are you hold everything else constant. You know, let's say you're a, a white male Catholic uh, steelworker in Ohio. And you're in a union, uh, or you're a white male Catholic steelworker in Ohio, and you're not in a union. And then you know, you'll, if you're in a union, you vote you vote ten percent more for the Democrats. Now, that's not because you're listening to speeches by the union leader, or even getting leaflets or something at the at the factory gate. It's because the very act of being in a collective institution, I think, changes your consciousness to a degree, not not completely, and makes you think in collective ways, and also think in oppositional ways 
ways to a real elite that is your, you know, your boss. And I think, I think the, 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 the if you're trying to figure out how do you convince uh, you know, tr- Trumpite, uh, you know, really almost semi-fascist uh, individuals, you know, how to, 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 you know, both Hillary and Biden, it's not by denouncing people, I mean, as whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, the deplorables, it is by, you know, getting them into a kind of progressive um, a structure where they can fight, and they do have grievances. They are hostile to the to elites of, of uh, sometimes I think of cultural elites, but also economic elites. You know, Youngstown is a Trump town now where it used to be a bastion of labor militancy anyway unions do that and i think the the democrats you know liberals would be well advised to understand that and i think the railroad strike is probably a probably you know some social scientists go in there and, and do a survey of these workers and how many of them vote for trump i bet you'd find a rather high percentage did vote for trump but nevertheless in their collective activity they are being progressive in in a, in, a, in any way we want to want to shape it you know we want to define it and so I think that's the case. I and I mentioned earlier. I I think that that no one uses the phrase populist to refer to labor strikes, even when they're violent, even when they're you know uh, destroying property. You know, they are. They, no one uses that word, and for good reason, because they are not alienated. They are not atomized. They are not mm. you know fighting a kind of uh, spurious uh, cultural elite. They're fight. They're fighting real elites. Right. So this is really, really good. But I want to go back just so that our listeners sure. get more or less clear on this agreement and what's going on. And from what I've read, and, and of course, the, the agreement so far is not public, but it seems the workers weren't at the table. The unions were along with the government. Marty Walsh, who's, uh, you have to say, is one of the more progressive labor secretaries um, or pro-labor, let's say anyway. But it seems like they got one paid sick day and dropped the demand the workers had for, I think, 15. So we don't really know, but maybe you yeah, could we just... Don't, we, don't, we don't know. I mean, that we, I'm frustrated by that as well. We don't know. The one thing that the that the unions were advertising, and they obviously had public appeal, was, oh, we don't have any sick days off for, you know, if we get penalized, we're going to the doctor. That was just the tip of the iceberg. That was just a, a good example of, you know, what if you want to go to your kid's football game? I mean, you know, okay, that doesn't have quite the, the appeal of do- doctor, but but, the, but they're equally important. And we, we do not have the details of this. I mean, there's this a point system, which, you know, which was quite draconian because the number of points were limited. Are they expanding the number of points? We don't know that. Susie, we just don't know the, and that's one of the things I think that workers are saying, wait a minute, I'm not going to vote on this until I know the actual details. And I think that devil is always in the details. So we, and I I suspect it's not so great because it was great. They'd be advertising it. And I think the union leadership, for whatever reason, maybe they felt they were pressured and they and they know they have a rank and file that's that's kind of militant. Maybe they're 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 kind of oh you know how are we could convince our rank and file to vote for this thing. And maybe they're having those kind of meetings right now. You know, so right. it has, and, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. just going to say because we don't know, and and we still could have a strike. I think you said it wouldn't happen until after the midterms, but Probably, you know yeah, who yeah. knows. Yeah. But I do want to ask. I, I read one statement somewhere, and I, I I'm not sure where one that by the union that was complimenting Biden, but also the role played by the leaders. Not unexpected. Yeah. Also, including the IBT, is that right? And the Teamsters. And then, yeah. but something yeah. about is it the case because there's 12 unions involved, three main ones. That if yeah. one union turns it down, the whole agreement is rejected. Is that the case? Do you know? It could be. Yeah. If, if the, uh, one of the major unions. Yes. And the, by the way, there were two unions. One was the machinists. 
which actually the leadership agreed earlier, much earlier to to the agreement, and the and the and the workers turned it down. They voted it down. So it's quite possible that uh, I I don't think a very tiny union, but but there were like three main ones. If one of those would would turn it down, I think they would all they would, and that's quite possible. That could happen. And I do think it's it's a kind of shell game here. They haven't announced the details of this. People can absorb these details. You just put them on the web, and they haven't. Done <laughs> that, that, that indicates something is is a little bit fishy here. Yeah, and you just mentioned, you know, that even though these workers might be ideologically conservative and maybe even have voted for Trump, they belong to institutions where there's some yeah. democratic structure. Do they choose their own leaders? Why weren't yeah. they? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, look, unions are kind of a combination of, you know, I mean, leadership can kind of hang in there, and some unions are more democratic than others. But they are. Here's the: if you're going to have a strike, uh, and they were threatening, so you 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 got to have at least enough sense that the rank and file is behind you. So it's they're they're roughly democratic. They are rough. Most unions are roughly democratic. And, you know, that, that varies to a degree here and there. But I mean, they are. And I think, interestingly, the the, the phrase union boss, which <laughs> will not die. And every so often, I even see it in the New York Times, uh, is a kind of, you know, it, it's gone on for 125 years. This it's really a pejorative, a demagogic kind of attack on the on I think the the impertinence of workers having power. That's what it really reflects. That's what this phrase, the union boss is going to reflect. There are authoritarian unions, there are terrible unions, but but the majority are not. Well, I do want to get into, you know, just said that, you know, I can't remember your exact quote. I'm getting old. I forgot it already. But you just said about, you know, the impertinence of workers. But we're seeing something that's really a sea change now, and that is that unions have been so demonized, but now there's so much public sympathy for workers and for unions. And that's a real big deal. And we've seen uh, this in this recent poll, 71 percent of Americans are favorable to unions or would like union protection. And you and I, you know, recently talked about this renewed militancy and the strikes after what was called striketober. And since that time, there's only been many, many more, you know, unionization drives 250 and counting or 200, I don't even know, Starbucks now trying to unionize. And so this is a, a really big deal about the change in attitude and sympathy. But before you, you know, sort of like comment on that, I want to go back to the rail workers within all of yeah. that, because yeah. They have social weight. That's what we used to call that, right? right. It's not just that it's 115,000 of them. That's right. That's right. They have the possibility of really derailing the economy. And there's another one of those, you know, uh, metaphors from railroad workers. So can you explain to the listeners before we go into the sympathy, what does it mean to have social weight? What's at stake for the economy in a situation after the pandemic where we already have supply chain, you know, interruptions and inflation. So, you know. Right. No, that's right. I mean, I think actually this gets to a important uh, sort of issue for the for the left. That yes, railroad workers, you know, have weight and so too do like airline pilots, right? They have they have that, that kind of strategic location or the same would be true of, you know, uh, well, truckers, obviously, but, you know, in the all, all those in the in the organized and, and longshoremen, certainly, you know, and they're only about like 15,000 West Coast longshoremen, but they can basically shut down the world. Yeah, they're all making money. They're all making money. They, they are not the most oppressed. <laughs> you know, they don't evoke the sympathy that say farm workers or uh, home healthcare aides do. But I think it's important for the left to understand that if you really want to challenge capitalism, 
you know, you do need to organize and to support and motivate, you know, these strategically located workers. Now, they don't have to all be white males. You know, in fact, I think increasingly we, we should have their demographics should reflect the rest of the society. Uh, and I think that's, that's slowly, slowly happening. But nevertheless, I think that that's something great. My great friend and my late, late friend, Mike Parker, would make mm. that point that we, we have to understand that skilled workers or workers with a strategic, this is important to organize and, and to make them more progressive and not, you know, I got mine and, you know, there's a, you can have a parochial kind of uh, self-interested character, but have them understand that they should be the vanguard of the working class. And so I think that's where railroad workers, and this is why I wanted my original op-ed before the, you know, the original title was, we need a railroad strike. And the point was, the railroad strike would do two things. I think they would have won definitively because public, you know, but the second was, it would demonstrate to a million Walmart workers or, or all those bar- baristas or, or, or whoever else that yes, strikes can win. You can, you can win. You can demonstrate your power if you're organized. And I think it would have been a very educational experience for the entire country. And I think therefore, uh, you know, that's why I wanted to call it, we need a railroad strike. Yeah. And by the way, if we're entering a period of, of you know, rising labor militancy, we're going to have strikes that are inconvenient that, you know, make it so, you know, what about how about my Christmas, you know, presents or, or all like of, France, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, we're going to have strikes that are inconvenient, hospital strikes, school teacher strikes, you know, things that, you know, to disrupt social goods. Well, that's the nature of democratic society. Uh, it used to be said, at least, or at least this is an anecdote, in Detroit in the, in the 1950s, if you wanted to get a haircut on a Saturday afternoon, you couldn't do it. Why not? Because the barbers union said, no, we're taking, we want a weekend, you know, and they, they, and so you couldn't get a haircut on a Saturday afternoon. That was, you know, they, that was just like in Germany. You, if you want to go shopping in the evening, no, some days you can't go shopping in the evening because they have strong unions that enforce the time limits. So, so I think that the railroad strike, and maybe it still will happen, will be a great educational lesson for all of us. Well, you also said, Nelson, in your article in the LA Times that their action ramps up the momentum for labor nationwide, which is essentially what you were just saying and talking about the historic role. But you also said that the organized rail workers may once again be setting working and wage standards for the nation. I mean, yeah, yes. And when, I mean, if they would modify this uh, scheduling thing and, and show it, show that, you know, yes, we want a, a regular schedules, right? then, then obviously that you, the same thing can be said to, to the people who run Amazon. I mean, they have just as draconian and, and kind of uh, algorithm based uh, system as, as in the railroads. And, and there you have a million workers there. And that's what, that's the main, by the way, wages are important. Uh, the reason we talk about wages is because they're easily understood and you can measure them, but they, they are not the crucial question that really get people pissed off. I mean, talk about dignity you're talking yeah. about power relations at work and you know when management uses these sort of mechanisms to basically you know move your life around then you you know, have a sense of self-worth and that's what motivates people and i think that the railroad workers were touching that nerve and that's why it was so important that's i want to just so go important. to one final area and that's because you talked about how we need a railway strike and the question is do you think that the unions are preparing the membership for that. And how do you see the way that the union leadership carried on in these talks so far without having seen any transcripts? But the fact that yeah. the main issues that workers are raising doesn't seem to be the one that concerned them. It was much easier to go for the 24 percent 
Say, well, I think, no, I think, I, no, I do think that the union, the union leadership, I mean, whatever their problems, and I'm sure there are, you know, they understood that this was a hot button issue and they, and they did press it. The money had already been uh, decided by the emergency board that Biden had set up the, a month earlier, and that was that was settled. They knew in, those, in the last couple of days with meetings with Marty Walsh that they needed to have some modification of this attendance policy. And whether it was good or bad. We don't, I guess, again, we don't know, but I think that the union leaders did know that. But I just, I'll just mention one thing and talk about, yes, you do need to prepare the membership and the public for big strikes, especially in the logistics or, or, or travel. And right now, another union, which is bigger and more important, touches our lives even more. The Teamsters are preparing for a major national strike at UPS, which will take place on August 1st, 2023. And they are preparing their membership for that and the public. They have a reform leadership of the Teamsters. They still have a a well-organized rank-and-file caucus, the Teamsters for Democratic Union. And that, I think, we need to keep our eye on for the next few months. Well, that is going to be the topic of our next conversation, but I guess I don't want to wait a year to do that. But right. just, you know, just finally on this, because we saw in the Chicago teacher strike and the L.A. teacher strike and some of that red wave before the pandemic, which just seems right. a long time ago that they they did do that. They were often called wildcats, but they were mostly like in each place preparing community support yes. and the workers as well. And maybe you could just say a word about that. Yes, yeah. Well, I think when you have 71% support for unions in the, in the country, then you can, you shouldn't be afraid of, of public inconvenience. And whether it's a teacher strike in Chicago or the or the wave of strikes in, in, in the West Virginia and other cities, other states for teacher salaries uh, or, or what have you, then I think, I think the public can understand, yes, the, they are fighting, in effect, for us. We have some of the same problems. The, the teacher strikes were were notable in the sense that they they were not just obviously just for higher salaries, but they wanted to change the whole tax and spending structure of some of these states so that public education would survive. And, I, and they had overwhelming support. So I think that many unionists, and especially in the era since Reagan, are afraid of the public. But I think now is the time not to be afraid of the public, that, that they'll be with us. Okay, final, final. I mean, that um, some people are comparing this impending strike, perhaps, to the IATSE situation that we talked about last October, I think it was. We have many, many, many different locals. Um, The membership was in favor of, of, let's say, the deal that they wanted, which was about hours and conditions, not pay. Um, yeah. And then the leadership, you know, divided between East and West and all yeah. of that. So are, is, do you see this as analogous to that situation? Well, it could be. I have to say, I confess that I, I don't know enough about the the relationships between these various rail unions, which have, you know, the reason it's all divided, all sorts of histories that, that really, <laughs> we don't really know. Someone someone knows. it, And, I, and, and yes, it's obviously a, an issue. I should say that the phrase in the, 100 years ago was amalgamation. Let's take all these craft unions or all these and amalgamate. Them. William Z. Foster leading the 1919 seal strike. It was an amalgamated struggle, you know, he was a communist. Well, there are no communists around now, but um, but there was coordination among these. But you're right, that that's, a, that's an issue for labor, and they have to figure that mechanism out. And something that we'll continue to look at as well. And since you brought up all those old slogans, the other thing was, you know, we can thank the labor movement for the eight-hour day and the weekend, you know. And, well, and- that, yes, that, yes, but but I think it, the labor movement hasn't kind of made that solid. We were losing the weekend, and we need to gain it back. That's right. So the answer is, of course, make it easier for more people to be in unions and then, you know, let unions do their 
And I have to, I have, I have to say one thing. Too. I have to say, yes, that, that's true. The problem here is, of course, that I mean, Congress is kind of stalemated on this question. So I have to say this about Starbucks and, and other things. We've had this tremendous expression of uh, more than just interest in unionism. I mean, they really activists who who are creating un- creating unions, but management in non-union situations, at least, they have their basically view is they haven't changed an, an iota. They haven't changed. They say, how do we solve this problem? We just delay. We just stonewall, and that's what's happening in all of these these sort of places where. You know, whether it's Apple stores or REI, even REI, which is a co-op, they're just saying, well, we'll just delay. And, you know, and you have 100 percent turnover in your your workforce. Delay works perfectly. You just wait a while and and the workforce is gone. You know, you get a new one. So I, I think people on the left would be well advised not to assume <laughs> that there is a Starbucks union. I mean, I think I just I'm not saying that to be conservative or depressive or or whatever. I'm saying that the task at hand is a big one and it's going to require radical solutions. And I'll tell you what and I I'll tell you in this overtime segment what my radical solution is. Yeah. I think I think sometime in the late fall that the Starbucks workers who are union should declare a general strike at Starbucks, a general strike. And what this would mean would be that every Starbucks that had voted to union, every Starbucks that was thinking of voting to union would shut down for a day or two. And on college campuses and the environments where there's, you know, a a ton of Starbucks, right? There are probably 500 campuses that have three Starbucks stores. We should have the student activists should sit in at these Starbucks and really create a crisis. I mean, because that's what's going to move Starbucks management. I mean, you know, and and that, that and that would help label the Starbucks not as the warm fuzzy place where you you write your your novel, but as a gilded age employer. I, I mean, and I think I'm I'm very hostile to adventurism when it comes to active, but in this case, I think it would I think it would have tremendous support. From your mouth to their ears, as we say, uh, that's a brilliant way to end it, Nelson. And thank you so much for all of that. I'm going to tell the listeners to watch out in the next five or six months for your new book, A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and American Capitalism. But also pick up some of your other books. You know, I thought your book on State of the Union is absolutely brilliant and not out of date. Also, your work on Walmart, on Walter Ruther, and of course, the most recent one, which is called Capitalism Contested New Deal and its Legacy. All of this just seems so important right now. And I can't thank you enough for joining us, Nelson Lichtenstein. Thank you. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're going to turn now to Ukraine. And I've invited Anatoly Ulyanov to join us after reading his, I don't know, astonishing, breathtaking, devastating article that was published on September 10th on Left East, which is one of my favorite go-to sites these days. The article's called The Superfluous People of Eastern Ukraine. And it's really like no other article that I've seen so far because it addresses a crucial question about what happens once the war ends, however that may turn out, when the question of reintegrating eastern Ukraine or the Donbass region, not just territory, but people, becomes a primary question. So we're going to get Anatoly's take. But let me just welcome Anatoly Ulyanov. He's a Ukrainian writer, 
visual artist and documentary filmmaker. You can find his work, which I've had fun exploring this morning, including his blog at datakinder.com. He's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Telegram. And he's joining us for the very first time. So welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So I want to first congratulate you on this piece. I I think we should probably, before we get into what's there, maybe talk a little bit about the general situation now. We're on the more than 200 days of war, I think 206 days, Russia's war in Ukraine. And of course, anything can change and everything does change. But right now, Russia is losing this war. I've been saying that since the beginning, but there was a period of time when it looked like they were holding out and we didn't know. But it's be- Russia has also become increasingly draconian in repressing any dissent at home. And it's been hiding, of course, the nature of what they call the special military operation from Russian media. But there have been tens of thousands of casualties and deaths. We don't really know the true number, but that makes hiding the nature of the war from ordinary Russians, uh, that much more difficult, even those who only get their news, let's say, from television. And we also know that millions have left the country, uh, those who cannot stomach this war or uh, his regime. And the, co- the economy in Russia has not yet collapsed, but but Putin has managed to turn Russia into a pariah state. And even now this week, authoritarian leaders like Modi and Yi and Xi have expressed concern bordering on, let's say, a critique for this war and Putin's conduct of the war. So let me just go back, you know, having said all of that, um, Anatoly, you say in your article that even if Ukraine wins, you have no optimism about a better future. So maybe that's a good place to begin. Well, I don't want to be uh, too pessimistic here because, you know, as all of Ukrainians, we are being in the state of this bipolar emotions, which are, you know, like uh, in the morning you feel so optimistic and, you know, uh, looking at the future with the bright eyes and like to the evening you are already tired and you're like everything is doomed and like it's the end of the world. So uh, I would take every emotion that is going around the war as with, you know, with a grain of salt right now. I, I do have um, serious concerns regarding the future of Ukraine, but actually like the recent developments uh, with the Russia losing on the Kharkiv's front, it definitely seeds both optimism and new source of fear, because I, I do think Russia is losing on that part, but I'm won't recommend being too blindly optimistic about it because still even though it's so cheering and so great that Ukraine is like advancing because we all naturally want Ukraine to succeed and win we still need to remember that like the Russia is the 10 more bigger army than Ukraine and it still has a lot of its crappy but in a high amount techniques and artillery and everything so it still has the numbers to play longer and you know devastate ukrainian lives so we'll see how it unfolds even though we definitely also need to recognize that ukraine is overperforming and exceeding all the expectations that is being here yeah so well let's you know that's exactly right and i like many other people who i guess we call ourselves russia watchers or something like that did not believe that putin would actually go into this war That just seemed not just a miscalculation, but a catastrophic mistake. And of course, I think, you know, as many other experts do, that uh, even Putin himself wasn't really 
prepared in that sense and in any case underestimated Ukrainian resolve and thought perhaps that he could just blitz it and it'd be over in a couple of days. And then he would, you know, force a regime change and somehow swallow up Ukraine or make it part of Russia again. You know, and I, I always like to tell my students that, you know, Ukraine means border and that these are borderlands. If you go back to even Marx and Engels or especially Engels, he wrote that, I guess, horrific phrase. I don't know if you know it, the non-historic peoples. And that's what I thought about when I saw the title of your article, which is about the superfluous people. But just before that, so having said that, because Putin so badly miscalculated and there was such initial opposition in Russia to the war and, you know, this really draconian repression where you could get 15 years for just saying something like that, no to the war, um, then it seemed to just make the conduct of the war all the more brutal. And, and every bit of this war is like a gigantic crime against humanity and is incredibly brutal. And then on the other hand, you've got these Russian troops, these kids who were not prepared, but, you know, and who are under-equipped, as you just mentioned, um, and they're eating rations that, you know, have a 2015 expiration date um, and didn't know what they were getting into. At least now, the the conduct, I don't know if that's uh, commanders of you know, have tightened up, but they're conducting war crimes and they're torturing people and killing them. Definitely. But I, I want to point here like a one interesting moment. Then if you look at those Russian soldiers and especially like the first ones who were t- thrown to the Ukrainian front, we can see very uh, particular class and also uh, imperial logic behind that because we saw actually colonized people uh, and like Bur- Buryats and, you know, Chechens and uh, mm-hmm as well as people from the depth of, you know, rural Russia. So uh, we see how the empire didn't want to, you know, uh, use their uh, sort of a white population, uh, if you know, to transfer it to, the, to this context, you know. So they're using these subalterns to, you know, to, to feed the war machine. And that's interesting one side. Another interesting point that we can conclude from that uh, first Russian blitzkrieg, it's that, you know, the main problem of any totalitarianism as as I see it, at least, is the communication. Because as soon as you isolate yourself in your tower of, you know, like total power and oppress any other, you know, opinions, nobody wants to deliver you bad news. Nobody wants to tell you, you know, like, oh, we're not prepared for the war. No, every department going to tell you, oh, we are so ready. Like people going to meet us with the, with the flowers. And the, the, the majority of Russian death would be from, the, you know, Ukrainian hugs because of how they expecting us. And they miscalculate that which is alarming because it's also gives us like aside from that conclusion i said it also shows uh, the state in which russia is and what i think you know like ukrainians all very happy when they see uh, russia failing or you know like every like uh, lose of russia they they meet it with hope and you know happiness but it actually shows that Russia is in a very bad state. And the bad state of Russia makes it uh, even more dangerous. Because, exactly. because now I see no a way for Russia to, you know, just fold back. To me, that seems like an existential war. And since it's an existential war, it can't lose, uh, which because the losing will mean the, uh, probably the collapse of the whole system and the whole, uh, whole the regime. So now it's, uh, it's, uh, Russia becomes this very dangerous, underskilled, 
undersupplied pariah state, which is very dangerous because they still has this, uh, you know, nuclear button, which they yes. use. And right. that's sort of a, like a very interesting and very tragic situation for, for, for everything. That's why I think it's very slowly developing uh, because nobody wants to play, you know, with, with, with this sort of a, a wild giant, which well, is not as giant anymore. I'm- there's things that you just said that I want to like comment on and that, you know, looking at the sort of totalitarian nature, and it's very different than it was during the Soviet period, but then there's a lot of, of similarities. And, you know, while every, while, while Putin was calling all Ukrainians Nazis, um, you know, and in fact, the far right or the, not, the fascist sector of, of Russia is larger than it is in Ukraine. Um, but at the same time, it seemed like the, the, uh, way that he was behaving reminded me much more of Stalin, you know, than than let's say anything else in terms of of uh, being alone in power. He's got a small circle around him, uh, having being surrounded by yes men telling him everything that he does is right. Um, you saw during the pandemic that uh, that Putin, you know, would only talk to people at like a forty foot length, you know, and he was. And and then, of course, there's the rumor that goes around Russia that he's sick. He's got cancer. Who knows? Everybody knows it, but nobody really knows it. You know, and and when I interviewed uh, uh, Boris Kogorlitsky a couple of times here, he just basically said um, that there's no end game here, that the only thing that's probably going to happen is the destruction of Russia. And you just hope that out of that, they'll be able to build something much better. But of course, we don't know how that's going to end. But I kind of want to b- turn it to Ukraine, because one of the real problems, Taras Billis is very good at constantly saying, you know, there's there are Ukrainians here. They have agency, they're people. And so much of the way the discussion goes, it's kind of like this great power a geopolitical thing in which Ukrainians aren't mentioned. And I fought very hard against that. But if we just go back into the region of East Ukraine or what's the Donbass, you know, the war has actually been going on there since 2014. And before this invasion, there were something like 14,000 deaths and half the population left. And of course, the industry was destroyed. This used to be the industrial heartland. That's no longer the case. And I think you could say, you know, Putin didn't lift a finger during those eight years to do anything to stop that war or to help, really. Your article really goes into that region and what do those people represent now after the war? And I know that very few people have paid that much attention to the people who populate the Donbass, those who are left over. But there was this researcher, Gerard Toll, who in the summer of 2021, you know, took a team there and did surveys. I don't know if you're aware of it. And there, the people there said they didn't want an independent republic because their leaders were corrupt. They didn't want to join Ukraine because Ukraine was corrupt. And I guess they thought that they were more pro-Russian because the standard of living would be higher there. But everything changed with this war. And this is, I guess, my very long way of getting to what has been accomplished because Ukraine's fighting a defensive war, a people's war against, you know, an invader. And it's united, this fractious country. And even in the Donbass, you find people now standing with Ukraine against Russia. But that's where your article really comes in, because you're talking about, okay, then what? 
Yeah, definitely. And to be honest, that article originally wasn't that focused on Eastern Ukraine as well. It was just like uh, a talk about general problem, which is much deeper uh, and exists with Ukraine, which is now partially being resolved by this external enemy that you that definitely unites the nation and creates this new path for Ukrainian and identity to unfold but in the root of all this is and the problem which i was concerned through my whole working life and writing about ukraine is this problem of Ukrainian identity, which is, of course, at the state of the war, it's very easy to, you know, to, it's just about picking like the side of oppressed and it's easier. But otherwise, I think we, we can talk here about this much wider problem of, you know, lack of political representation, which has happened right after the fall of the Soviet Union. And after that fell, uh, I couldn't say that was mm, very effective effort to create this sort of uh, inclusive uh, Ukrainian identity, which will accommodate all the variety of those nuanced people that uh, live in Ukraine. That's that's the whole drama of the space. It, it it it's very hard to simplify Ukraine to some sort of like one strict national type because it's so many cultures, so many uh, nuances. You know, myself, I have like, my mother is from Russia, my father is Ukrainian, my grandparents are Soviet people. So, mm-hmm. and I'm, and I was born in Lviv. Yeah. So, which is a w- Western part of the Ukraine, like people call it very nationalistic. So, uh, yeah. so when you exist on that crossroads of everything, you're trying to find your space in it. And, and to me, I always felt like this is a, problem because any project that was offered to me was in sort of a lacking because you you can you know appeal to the russian project but it's imperial project it's basically mean that like all those aspirations of ukrainians they have like for centuries it's just nothing that you know like just just give up and like now it's going to be just russian speaking totality of the country so they they do have that need to fight for their rights unfold you know the the rights of the language that like develop all those things that weren't accessible to to the Ukrainian people for centuries. In the same time, uh, I had always the problem with the way it was done. It was always like the conflict which had uh, this dimension, uh, not of inclusion, but rather on this, you know, like, oh, so in order to develop Ukrainian, we need to suppress Russian within our own body. And that's, I think, was a very big mistake, which was very used through the whole the revolution, every election, it was pretty much used to polarize the society and create all those uh, artificial uh, civil conflicts and cultural wars that it's turned into a like a real hot one. Yeah, so that's I want to just problem. ask you, you know, your background really is not untypical that you're, you know, your father was Russian, your mother's Ukrainian, or maybe I got it wrong and it was the yeah. other way around. But, um, you know, 30 percent of Russians, you know, have have family in Ukraine or vice versa. And I think it's interesting because the language issue has now been highlighted, right? That um, so much of, I mean, even Kiev was a Russian speaking city. The Eastern was Russian. I'm assuming you grew up speaking Ukrainian. I don't know. Um, 
in your no, family? Actually, no, no, actually, no, actually, the Soviet family spoke like I was like, that's another thing. I was like in a very Ukrainian city speaking also Russian, but I never right. felt, you see, I never felt through my childhood years, any conflicts or like on a nationalist act, even though I was supposed to live in the Ukrainian, as they call it, neighborhood. So, it, and, you know, playing with the kids around, no problem was happening at that point. It was like more unfolded later on. And that's, Another thing I wanted to also say that because we, you know, we we keep talking about it. And when we talk about it, we talk about like this more of a high concept of like, say, imperialism or identity or or like Soviet heritage or uh, language. Like all those are rather um, uh, superstructure above some sort of a human level of a soul. It's not like. Uh, you see when for instance when this whole very problematic uh, process of decommunization is uh, unfolding in ukraine everybody starts to talk about it in terms of like how cruel was the soviet regime or how uh, totalitarian it was or what was their ideology but on the ground level it's not a matter of ideology or those kind of things so it's 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 more of a problem in terms of like how would you cut your soviet grandma from your family memory or how do you suppress that and i see that actually the most uh, aggressive and very kind of radical ukrainianizers in ukraine are actually former russian speaking people who are trying to you know resolve this inner conflict who i am where i am how do i belong to ukraine and many right now with this war are starting you know to uh, do this sort of a performative acts of i don't know like identity castration or something of sort because uh, you know like now from now on i'm not going to speak russian or from now on i'm not going to interact with anything like that and that's i think it's a it's a very drama of the whole situation because it's not quite clear how to cut one of your hands and remain as a whole and complete and functional so those interwines are actually the in the core of it all and ideology and all those like lenin stalin it's not that relevant to the problem but i think this issue of identity or the way that you're describing it i don't even know if that's it you know and it's not new i remember going back to the soviet union and reading say uh, Viktor Kravchenko's book, which is a very useful book, uh, where he talks about going to school in Ukraine in the 1930s, where one year all the textbooks were in Ukrainian, and then they changed the policy, and the next year they're all in Russia, and then the following year they change it back. And so you just, you of course, had to learn both languages in order to get through. But you can imagine not just how disruptive that is in terms of your, let's say, education, but also just in terms of how you think about who you are. And I don't know if we're reducing it to language here, because it's so much more when you have, let's say, what I thought was, you know, genocidal intent, when Putin says he's going to denazify or, you know, and he's equating Ukrainian with Nazi, that's genocidal intent. But it's, as you say, really... I guess mixed up because there's so much intertwining of consciousness and identity and, you know, and how, and you also raised in your article, like when this war's over, Russia's still on the border and people still have their relatives. So what happens? Well, it, de- it all depends on how the war ends, because yeah. the, uh, the, the conclusion of the war uh, defines the, the relationship within the region. I, I do believe that, uh, for instance, 
Ukrainian victory, which is by numbers, we can't project right now, but it's a very important uh, sort of a requirement for both Ukrainian society to overcome the traumas and demons of the past and everything. So as for Russians, because I do believe that Russia needs to experience this sort of a losing not to the some sort of other empires but to those sort of people they not recognize as people and i do believe that when like those people who they consider as subalterns like ukrainians those people who they not believe they exist they need to be those who you know cut the dragon and i believe like russia can heal only through the losing through the losing and through the collapse of this regime because they didn't process the beast they becoming now uh it's it's really astonishing and, and 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 to me it's very surprising because who could tell that country that fought you know fascists through the in nazis through the second world war would become this uh, uh swampy reflection of that enemy so that that's i believe the problem and i don't think that you are wrong by saying that for putin it's a genocidal war i definitely see uh, that dimension in it uh, as well because you know like with this development on the Kharkiv front we'll see how the all the kremlin propaganda how they uh, how they pack it for the population and they starting to say oh that's not ukrainian who fought us it's just like those western arms like as if pistols and like artillery shots by themselves and then an other thing is they are now actually talk a lot about like those dark-skinned international mercenary so they want to you know reduce this subjectivity and suppress the subjectivity of ukrainians and supplement them with more of a like a higher status enemy so no it's not actually ukrainians that beat us it's just the whole world is against us so we are fighting this very strong enemy and so we are like uh, so they cheer up themselves by telling oh they're like we we've been beaten by by better enemy Quite, but it's um, interesting because pathetic. ukrainians still have no agency in that then and they still get erased right <laughs> yeah it's they keep being erased through the whole the narrative of it and i and i think that's also a problem which affected many left wing activists along because i think uh, many of us uh, i consider myself including fell into this sort of a tunnel vision where we all were so focused on this major uh, western american empire that you know uh, wanders around the world that we haven't noticed this sort of a, a more i don't know immediate beast that unfolds there and like uh, and even now i see how so many people on the left falling to this sort of uh, putin's rhetoric i uh, want ex- you know, yeah. to anti west thing no. I just have to comment here because it's a major obsession of mine, too. And I've been a long time leftist and I'm I just don't want to talk to my friends anymore who who are tankies, I think, who, you know, yeah. almost reflexively support Russia, even while condemning it, because for some reason they must think it's still Soviet or something. But they certainly and then they'll talk about how reactionary Ukrainians have been. But mostly it's about NATO. And of course, I also, you know, went along with George Kennan in 1997 he said the single biggest foreign policy blunder of the United States 
in the last 50 years was the expansion of NATO to, you know, the former uh, Soviet bloc countries and then to the near abroad. And I agree with that, but that's not what's happening here. And I think it's lazy thinking. It's the poverty of intellectual thought. It's lack of understanding of what's really going on or because it just so flies in the face because, you know, it's not NATO and it's not the United States who are the enemy here. So it's really hard for the left to get their head around that. I think that's to be generous to them. But on the other hand, it's it's infuriating because Ukrainians still get erased in that kind of thinking. And I think this, you know, you see, this is a problem of of this neoliberal kind of era that started to after, you know, like the fall of the Soviet Union, because I think we we've got into this end of history space, which like for a former Soviet Republic, it became, you know, the just a space of these market reforms, unsupported, unfollowed uh, with any sort of ideology. So what we see now and what people actually missed as we see it, uh, that Putin is, the Putin regime has no ideology. We see how in that audience, it appears as, you know, like this very orthodox, uh, religious kind of conservatism that fights uh, uh, homosexuality. <laughs> on other forms, uh, it raises the Soviet flag. So it just fills the void on the on the place of ideology with all those symbolical uh, representations of, uh, of, of different dreams, different political projects. And I, you know, I observed few leftists through, and their development through the years. And I think that the core of the whole core of the whole war here is not on a Putin side, but on the side of those who joined his narrative is is the deep resentment for the results of of that globalization, result of neoliberal reforms, feeling of, you know, lacking of social means and like material means and development. And that resentment turned you into this nostalgic sort of a creature that, as as one of the tankies put it, like, you know, it's no longer possible to recognize, uh, to, to distinguish your memories and the horizon you're going to. And, and most of them are just simply seeing Russia as now as sort of this, as a ghost of the Soviet Union, some, something big that they can relate. And that's a big mistake because we, we never should forget about that Putin was brought by, you know, post-Soviet liberals. Mm-hmm. And it's a basically a market capitalism sort of autocracy. So it's a new phenomenon. And that phenomenon has no ideology, but it, 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 it mimics different ones. So I mean, so. it was really clear at one point he, he mentioned that, you know, he admired Pinochet in Chile. So that should have been a marker. Yeah. You know? But on the other hand, because that transition failed literally until much later, the 90s were so catastrophic that, you know, we were calling it market Stalinism. Well, we can't <laughs> go into that whole discussion right now. All but right. you're absolutely right to point to it. And maybe we can come back and discuss it another time. But I'm really interested, too, because you mentioned to me in an, in an email note about cancel culture. And I was thinking, well, you know, the worst thing here is that somebody like Anna Trebka has been fired from the Metropolitan Opera and anybody Russian or Russian food or anything, you know, is all of a sudden demonized. But that's not what you're talking about. But I would really like to hear, you know, your, you, what you what you mean by that. Well, I just seeing a lot of people, especially humanitarian, uh, edu- humanitarianly educated people, people working in the media or people working in the art and culture in general in Ukraine, many of whom are no longer in Ukraine. They're like um, ran from the war to the different sort of a, like a Western countries. Uh, and they are 
becoming this very passionate and very sort of a hysterical even, and which can be understood, of course, but in terms of like canceling, canceling everything, Russia, every Russian person is guilty, you know, like raising this collective guilt thing, which I think is problematic because uh, in my uh, maybe naive opinion, but like uh, I believe that um, we are not soldiers. I mean, people who work in the media, cultural people, human there, we are not soldiers with the rifles, right? So we can't fight war in that terms. But what we need to do is we need to preserve this sort of a communication and sort of a spaces for, for not losing our human self. And I believe that right now this cancel culture thing is failing that very mission that we have as educated people, as a privileged people who can, for, for instance, run from Ukraine because you need to have a money to run from there. You can't just mm. run. You need to be in a sort of a financially privileged situation to put, to put yourself in a those Western institutions and get grants and everything like that. So I believe those needs to be uh, reserved for preservation of humanity, because, you know, when you starting to get, um, especially at the beginning of the war, when I started to get from my very close friends and even relatives and, you know, like uh, sort of uh, pictures of Russian corpses on the field and and this, with the description of the joy they feel I, I can understand the, the 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 emotion of the moment but then I I'm thinking that people looking at the corpses through the day and feeling joy about it I do believe that those people need to have some safe spaces to for preserve their I don't know uh, mental health and preserve their status uh, humanity so that's why I think people of the culture needs to work on that field and not on the field how we like cancel some i don't know some s- s- many people you know who run from russia right now it's a poor creative people who run i don't know like some lgbt person who runs from russia to georgia with like five dollars in the pocket and how this person is guilty or like what what this person should should do like remain in russia and fight those policemen i don't know like I, who can judge those people and, and and then we forgot about like we we, we starting to talk about like all russians are guilty and then we can talk about like so LGBT people in Chechnya, Dagestan women who, you know, seeing the oppression from their husbands and like getting married by the consent of their parents. Like, are those people doesn't doesn't deserve to run, doesn't deserve to get some visa to the to the Baltic countries with they now excluding them, how those people needs to be saved. And I think through those decisions, I see Ukraine has a very big opportunity right now to to actually uh, be not only the victim of the aggression, but also this, I mean, in my dreams, at least, this lighthouse of the human preservation to show that we are not like that. We are not going to be spoiled by this toxic, um, but but the poisons of the war, because I think that's a part of the imperialism and that's a part of the Russian aggression. It's not just the killing of the bodies. It's just this poisons. It's infuses in this social fabric and, you know, melts it from inside. So that's why I, I'm not, I'm very conscious about this cancel culture thing. And I think it's a problematic thing. But what I'm hearing from you, Anatoly, is something quite hopeful, in fact. And that is that maybe through this experience of this awful war, Ukrainians can be some sort of, I guess, because they've come together and shown uh, their resolve against the aggressor that they have, you know, represent some kind of hope. And I think one of the hardest part about your article is that, you know, you do say that that hope is the best thing that you have, but you also say that there's really no, you know, what lay ahead is either bad or terrible, but nothing good. 
Well, I do see that because I also hear everything that is going on and like uh, observing the reactions and those, you know, like mm, I do see also a, like the very doomsday outcome because like what's going to happen to those unnecessary in between sort of a people after the war because, you know, war makes it everything black and white and uh, looking through the reaction of the Ukrainian government in some sort of a spaces like uh, all those, uh, you know, uh, threats to the people who's in a way collaborated with the Russian. And, but that it might be like, I don't know, some, some old Eastern uh, Ukrainian granny who, I don't know, like just uh, used Russian humanitarian aid. And that's her collaboration. That's her treason of the country. So just, uh, or got like, you know, some document from Russian to, to get that humanitarian aid. I believe that I just don't see the governmental message from Ukrainian side that, you know, in any way is promising for those people. It doesn't tell them, you know, like, don't worry, we are going to help you. Like we are going to be together. Everything is going to be fine. I don't hear that message. I hear the message that like, we're going to see whom to persecute. We're going to see what to do with those superfluous people. We're going to like, it's not a welcoming message. And I don't understand like where those people should look for, because like on the one side, they have like this Russian beast that throws their sons to the war, you know, like just like uh, making them mobile, mobilizing them and throwing into the trenches. On the other hand, we're seeing like Ukrainians in the government saying that they are traitors and everything. And so I don't know how can you call it a policy of reintegration if none of your messages are reintegrating in any way. And I saw that again and again and again through every revolution. You see every revolution in our country and every political uh, turmoil is happening um, on the same scenario of the emotion. Like there is like this educated uh, sort of liberalish kind of a civil society, which always at the beginning is very hopeful. We say, we're talking about Western values, European values, joining you know, this family of inclusive and multicultural uh, nations and everything. But then it ends with some sort of a very uh, exclusive policies. And you see, as after Euromaidan, they just throw away like language uh, law because it was like very imperial to, to, to the victory side. And then, you know, like it's, it's not, not a policy of friendship or f- policy of creating this one space for Ukrainians. I think there is, and that leads again to the question of inclusive identity and, you know, the space for everyone. So yeah, there is a pessimism in me in that regard. And I, and I do believe that we need some sort of a mechanism uh, after the war mechanism, which will preserve um, the safety of the people on those liberated uh, regions because the emotions are high. We had like so many, this Bucha, Mariupol, Izum, uh, massive graveyards, which is um, could be used as a pretext for different sort of the dangerous cleansing and everything. And those, and, and, and especially we know that all the politicians in our spaces always used those sort of a tragedies, those emotional arguments to polarize the society and use them for their benefit. So that's why I do believe they can play with genocide easily after the war, not because they're genocidal or like they, those evil regime monsters, but because it's a mechanics of how they usually operate after anything like, like this historical event. So I do worry about those people. I don't know how to build this new sort of a feeling of belonging with this society because how to look 
how to be like, for instance, Mia, how to be support, like I su- I'm supportive for Ukraine. And at the same time, I do need to uh, somehow internalize and understand like, uh, am I okay with not being able, for instance, to work uh, in my language, is my mother's language in Ukraine? Or how do I should, uh, I don't know, deal with the fact that all the symbols of my grandparents are being um, removed from, from the text. And that's for me, it's not because like, I'm so passionate about the the Lenin monument itself. It's not. It's just about like uh, the the unfolding self sense of exclusion. And 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 I I do think that many people like myself they are looking to for belonging, not exclusion. So we trying to find a place for ourselves within this Ukrainian narrative. Anatoly, Liana, we've run out of time, but you've raised so many important questions. And I think like the simplistic thing that one could say is this, uh, this is really up to the left and to the people themselves to overcome and not allow this to be the reality in the post-war Ukraine. But it's a monumental task. And I, um, I hear you. And I just hope that others do, too. And I want to just point our listeners to the article that you've written that raises all of these issues. It's in Left East, and it's called The Superfluous People of Eastern Ukraine. Anatoly, can I have you back on the show at some point? We're going to have lots more to talk about. Definitely, definitely, because history is endless and we need to chew it up. So that's exactly I will right. be honored. Thank you so much. Well, I'm honored to have you on today. Anatoly Ulyanov is Ukrainian writer. He is an Isaili, a visual artist and documentary filmmaker. You can look for him online, find him on uh, Instagram, Twitter, Telegram, or at datakinder.com. Thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.